Hello again, this is The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I want to share a book with you this time by Chuck Colson. Quite a guy. I hope you know his story. He was Nixon's hatchet man back in the Watergate days, became a Christian, and uh, set up prison fellowship. Uh, just uh, an amazing life that he led and some terrific books that he's written. Uh, he wrote this one with, uh, let's see, it's Chuck Colson and Harold Fickett, who's an author of a lot of books. And this one's called The Faith. I, and I want to give you just an idea of what other people are saying about it. For example, Rick Warren, he says, you know, true biblical Christianity is often mischaracterized by the media. It's misused by politicians. It's mistaught by academics. And he says, most Americans don't really understand it. And he said, everyone will benefit from reading this book. Skeptics, seekers, new believers, longtime followers of Christ. Then he ends up by saying this, it's a clear, concise, and compelling summary of what followers of Jesus actually believe. So this book is a, a theological book, but it doesn't, um, how do I say this in a polite way, it doesn't seem as, as dull as some of the books can be in the area of theology. Here's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He said this masterful work will be used and should be used by every evangelical church, pastor, and believer in America. Uh, another person said it was carefully reasoned and passionately argued. And another person said it reads like a novel. And that's exactly right. This is not a book that's dry, that people start rolling their eyes or going to sleep over or whatever. People have praised this one. It's not long, and uh, it's a good, good read. It's called The Faith. The subtitle is What Christians Believe, Why They Believe It, and Why It Matters. So the topics he covers first are God and the faith, and then the faith and life. So in a sense, it's theology followed by the, the practical application of it. Somewhat like uh, the letters of the New Testament. You know, they usually set out theology first, and then the second half is, okay, because of this theology, how should you lead your lives? So I'm going to take just one chapter in here under the first section, God and the Faith, and I'm going to do the last part of it. It's called God Above, God Beside, God Within. And so it's going to talk about the Trinity. And I've heard uh, different people talk about the Trinity and try to explain it, and I think Colson's is probably as good as anybody's uh, ever been able to do. So he says, what, what are we talking about when it comes to the Trinity? The idea is that Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God and three persons. And he said that certainly goes beyond human understanding, but it's the heart of Christian spirituality. And uh, he, talk, he compares it with, uh, for example, Islam. And he said for Islam, it's, it's a sin, it's idolatrous, they call it shirk, that it's, it's claiming untrue things about God. And uh, it says over and over again, the Muslims and others will talk about the Trinity as being irrational and blasphemous. And, of course, the charge is uh, polytheism, that Christianity is a form of polytheism, or worshiping a bunch of gods. So Colson says, well, and here's the challenge to all of us, so I'm going to just let him have his statements here, his questions. Can you state what Christians mean when they speak of the Trinity? Do you know what the biblical evidence is that led Christians to affirm that God is one, but three persons equal in all respects? And why is this central to our worship as Christians? He says, most Christians and even some pastors don't know this. So I've explored it in uh, some of my online material that you can get at apologeticsforlife.org. But I want to focus on how uh, Colson goes about unwrapping this. 
he says, well, you got critics that say, you know, the Trinity is never explicitly spelled out. There's not a chapter in there somewhere where Jesus or Paul or somebody says, okay, here we go. Trinity is blah, blah, blah. And he says, uh, he says, it's not, it's true. It's not explicitly defined, but he says it's made abundantly clear. And he mentions uh, that Jesus explains this view of God to his disciples late in his ministry when his followers are kind of confused. And they're looking to Jesus for reassurance. You know, show us the Father. And Jesus says in John 14, 9, in response to say, show us the Father, he says, those who have seen him have seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. He also promised that the Father would give you, this is a quote now coming from the book of John, the Father will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So the claim is that the Father and Jesus would come to dwell within these disciples through the Holy Spirit, and they would know true peace. So he's talking about the Trinity there to reassure his disciples. So he says the New Testament is clearly Trinitarian in its witness. After all, what does Jesus say in one of his last statements, the Great Commission? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's Christianity's first creed that he says. It anticipates other creeds coming along. He also mentions Paul's benediction to the Corinthian church. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's 2 Corinthians. Well, what's the record of the early church? Colson goes into that next. He says, well, it, it's, a, it's a, definitely a mystery. But he said it's not just the product of speculation by theologians. He said it emerged from what, the, what they'd gotten from Jesus and his followers. The early church, for example, affirmed that there was one God. They strenuously countered any teaching to the contrary of that. Now, when it comes to Jesus, they did grapple around Jesus' testimony, you know, how to describe that. Uh, he's, he's human, he's divine. What's, what's going on there? What did Jesus mean when he identified himself with the Father? Well, he had one school of theology that said, well, he wasn't really distinct from the Father. So their view was that they would call it modalism, that God merely appeared in three different modes or methods. So you had God the Father, he became Jesus, and then he became the Holy Spirit. But Colson says, well, if that's the case, then Jesus praying to the Father is just a sham. It's just a show. But that doesn't make any sense. He says, also, if Jesus only appeared to be a man, then could his experience of human existence and his suffering have been real? He says, others said, well, okay, we maintain the oneness of God, but we teach that Jesus was not fully divine. He was just a superior created being. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's Jehovah's Witnesses and it's Arianism. That came out in the fourth century. But church fathers stood against this, and they recognized that if Jesus was just a man or a glorified being but not God, then he couldn't be our Savior. He had to be fully man and fully God. And only then would his death and resurrection be the work of God to reconcile humans with the Father. Well, then the question is, what about the Holy Spirit? Was he a person or just some kind of force? I've heard that a lot, that he's just a force. Kind of like, be the, may the force be with you. But in John's Gospel... Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit five times, and he uses the pronoun he. And he, he also says Jesus and the apostles speak of the Holy Spirit as possessing the three chief characteristics of human, 
of, of humans, mind, feeling, and will. Now, how does he get that? Well, he, he looks at Romans, Romans 8.27, Paul talks about the mind of the Spirit. That's the same mind that Jesus said would guide you into all truth. That's John 16. Now, we know the Spirit has feeling, Colson says, because we're counseled not to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 4.30. Well, you can't grieve a force. You could only grieve a personal being. And it says the Spirit determines what gifts to, to give each believer, just as he determines. That's 1 Corinthians 12.11. So it has will, this being has will as he determines. So it says, Colson kind of sums this part up. He says, you know, the spirit is not a metaphor for inspiration. It's just as much a person as the father and the son. He says, by the end of the fourth century, the early church had a complete understanding of the Trinitarian nature of God. The whole church professed one God in three persons. They were distinct from each other. Their distinction lay in the relationship of each to the other. Each filled a different role. Each complemented the other. But in each one of these, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God resided. So he says, all right. So we've got the idea. We have three persons of the Trinity. They're distinct, but God is one. So he says, it is baffling. But he said, you know, a lot of things that we encounter in life are baffling. He said, think about higher mathematics. How about advanced physics? So he says, since we're talking about the nature of God, why wouldn't that also present some similar difficulty? And let me just interject at this time. That's, that's exactly my thought, and I've shared this with other classes in the past, and that is, if we're dealing with a true God, the God that is so much beyond us, that's so much bigger, that's able to bring the universe into existence, why wouldn't we expect to have some difficulty in understanding this God? I mean, imagine an ant trying to understand the human race and using the limited brain power that an ant has. They wouldn't understand humans. So I always felt that any god created by another religion that tries to simplify things is probably not for real. He says none of these analogies, by the way, because he, he says people have tried analogies, you know, like water can be steam and it can be uh, liquid and it can be a gas and all this kind of stuff and frozen. But he said... None of these analogies really capture the complexity of persons that are distinguishing their relationship to one another, and yet one. And these, and then I like this. Colson said, you know, actually these analogies usually lead into error, and I agree with that. So I think we're better off really not messing with coming up with an analogy. And he said, you know, the Trinity actually solves some problems. That reminds me, Greg Kokel has a wonderful series on the Trinity, and he says it's a solution, not a, not a problem. It solves many issues in the uh, New Testament and what people have said about it. So that's a separate deal. You can go take a look at Greg Kokel, str.org, and see what he has to say. Very, very helpful. But Colson says the same thing. It satisfies things. It solves some problems. He said the Creator God, for example, in Christianity is not distant. He's not unapproachable. He's not a judging God like Islam. Why is that the case? Because the Christian view is that ever since the beginning of time, actually before time, you've had the Trinity in a love relationship. God has always been in a love relationship. Allah is by himself. Allah cannot love because he's all by himself. So he's not distant. He's not unapproachable. He's not a judging God like uh, Islam. Neither is God 
uh, so diffuse within creation, like the Eastern religion, where you really can't find God. He says, the Father's close beside us in the Son as we encounter this God in the person of Jesus. Like one of the popes said, it's God with a human face. That's Jesus. And then we have that power of the Holy Spirit to come live with us. God gives us his life. So it's a far more satisfying situation to, to really believe in the Trinity. He says the Trinity answers the deepest needs of our heart, gives us a depth of spirituality that we don't get in other religions. Now he even compares it, uh, he said, you know, another thing to where we scratch our heads is about uh, the wave-particle duality principle in physics. It doesn't really make sense. How can light be a wave and be a particle at the same time? So, again, it's a logical issue that uh, we deal with there. So, he says uh, the Trinity gives us an interesting spirituality. He says it exists as a perfect community of self-giving. And he says in this life, we as Christians can participate in this community with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we can have our own community as well. He says we invoke the Trinity every time we say the Lord's Prayer. Our Heavenly Father supplies our bread through Jesus Christ. The Father forgives sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome temptation. So I like this chapter a lot. Uh, there's a little bit more to it, but uh, I'm going to have to close at this point. So this is Chuck Colson again and Harold Fickett. It's called The Faith, why, What Christians Believe, Why They Believe It, and Why It Matters. An excellent introductory book to theology that you might want to go through yourself or show to friends that are a little fuzzy about certain Christian beliefs. A good book. So thanks so much for listening, and uh, let's uh, pull down another book in the future podcast.